Well, good morning. Welcome to this episode of the Chaplain's Chair, a thought-provoking podcast about religion, faith, family, and yes, I'll even sprinkle some politics in from time to time. You're probably going to notice there were some changes to the podcast in the past week if you've been following along. If you're new to the podcast, this is your first time, it's not really going to mean much to you, but we've changed the name from uh, Chaplain Tim Podcast to the Chaplain's Chair, which I found to be uh, a much better name for what I'm trying to do here with this podcast. We are still on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I believe we're on Google Podcasts now, and we're on the Anchor FM podcast hosting site, which I'm using uh, to host a podcast. So I want to start out today with uh, an interesting topic that I think speaks to everybody. I'm going to preface that by saying when I was in, in Bible college, I had a professor once who said, we can find our sermons anywhere if we pay attention to what God's showing us. And many times when a sermon comes together or a message comes together, however, whatever you want to call it, it's what the minister thinks you need to hear or should hear. And I think that's good practice generally, but I keep reminding myself that God whispers in our ear uh, many times through circumstances of life and lets us know what he wants people to hear. And ministers need to respond to that, I think. Uh, Such is the case with today's podcast, and it comes about from conversations I've had over the years with various people about God. We know that life is full of tragedy and pain, and we can fill in the blank with our own personal stories or experiences. I don't need to make one up for you. Whether it's a personal story, like you found out you had cancer, or you lost a loved one very close to you, or a close loved one was the victim of a random and heinous crime, or uh, something greater than that, something more on a global scale or a national scale, like like Pearl Harbor, World War II. I, I think of 9-11 and the resulting wars that came from that. Natural disasters like tornadoes and hurricanes, uh, for those of us that have family in areas where those are uh, very common and very dangerous. Or even the more recent turmoil like the ongoing war in Ukraine. You know, those are stories where people sit back and say, well, where's God in all this? If God is all loving and powerful, why, and fill in the circumstances. Now, it's tough to provide answers to these types of questions, even for someone who's been trained and educated to attempt them, to try to find some explanation for people that are hurting or have experienced uh, some sort of pain or tragedy. Now, the heartfelt attempts, I think, to answer those questions may be well-intended. I've even done it myself. For example, well, God has a reason for everything, trust in his providence, or, you know, you shouldn't be sad, your loved one's in heaven now, or whatever platitude is applicable. I don't think that quite does it for most people. I don't think these responses are very helpful, and in many cases, they're not very comforting. And in fact, in practical ministry, I find that explanations like that do more harm than good sometimes. In ministering to people, I find the number one obstacle to people believing in God at all is the existence of pain and suffering, whatever their personal experience has been with it. The, the question is always asked, well, how can an all-powerful, loving God allow such evil to exist, pain, tragedy, etc.? If God's all-powerful, why didn't he stop this from happening? Whether it's something personal or something bigger than that. Or why doesn't God stop all of this evil? There's no God if things like this can happen, they say. And if there is, I don't want any part of believing in him. And when I embarked on my path to ministry many years ago, I committed myself to be honest with people. I wanted to speak to those issues and questions that I had myself. 
I don't think I'm much different than most people. And I think I probably have the same questions about life. Most everybody has. And I want to be honest with people. And I think God wants to be honest with people. And the Bible is a very, very specific book. It's very honest book. It's very hard hitting about things. We'll read things in the Bible and we kind of raise an eyebrow and go, wow, why? I want to be honest with people. And I believe it's normal to ask where God is in the tragedies of life. And I believe that God has real answers to real problems, that our faith is not a blind faith, that God is personally interested in your life. And when you feel pain, God feels pain, as any father would for his children. Evil, pain, and suffering exist. And flippant responses like, it's God's will, do not help, unless they're given in the context of deeper theological understanding, which is often absent from the discussion. But God does have an explanation. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. In theological study, providing a probable explanation for the ways of God as it relates to the existence of evil or suffering is known as theodicy, which is just a fancy seminary word uh, defined as it's an exposition of the theory of divine providence with a view to the vindication of the attributes particularly of holiness and justice of God in establishing the present order of things in which evil, moral as well as physical, uh, excuse me, physical, largely exists. This is to look at the theory of the existence of evil and defend the holiness and justice of God when those things exist. I want to read the text for today, and then we're going to look at this question a little bit closer. I want to look at Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. It's the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, For the creature, that's what God created, whether it's a human being or whether it's nature or whether it's an animal, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, it says, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. It's a key phrase there, bondage of corruption, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. So what Paul was saying is the entire creation is groaning and travailing. There's pain until now, until the present point. Paul was saying, look, creation has been in pain since the beginning. In fact, he's in bondage to it, the bondage of corruption, he calls it. I invite you to go ahead and look that up if you don't have a Bible with you. But I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1. In verse 31, we're talking about the creation of the universe in that portion of the Bible. And it says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So creation is very good, it says here in that verse. But if we go ahead a couple of chapters, we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, where God says, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow... Shall you eat of it all the days of your life? Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, to you. Well, what happened here? God's creation went from perfect to cursed. Now, if we look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, we read the old story of Eve and the serpent and Adam and the apple, however you want to describe it or explain it. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, 
She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And we all know this story. God says, don't eat the fruit. Eve ate the fruit. She gave it to Adam. He ate the fruit. And God banishes them from the Garden of Eden and prevents their access to the tree of life. And he tells them that they're going to die. Now, this disobedience sets in motion a history of rebellion against God that's still playing out to this day. We'll look at some of the verses pertaining to that here in a second. But if we go ahead to Genesis chapter 4, it says Cain talked with his Abel, uh, excuse me, Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Of course, those were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Kills his brother. We roll ahead a couple more chapters into Genesis 6, verse 5, and it says, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, we've had quite a fall here. We go from everything God created was good to God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, it says, nonstop. Well, so who's responsible for this evil? That's really the question. Augustine of Hippo, a great theologian, and later Thomas Aquinas, another one, they defined evil as the corruption of good, and it went something like this. God is absolutely perfect. God created only perfect creatures. And then we see that, of course, in Genesis 1, where everything that God created was good. One of the perfections that God gave some of his perfect creatures was the power of choice. Eve chose to eat the apple. Adam chose to eat the apple. So we get to the next point. Some of these creatures freely choose to do evil. And therefore, a perfect creature, exercising his perfect freedom, caused evil. So, in essence, we've inherited the consequences of Adam's disobedience. And because Adam's sin is genetic, it says in the book of Romans chapter 5, we're born with the condition, the condition of sin. And so you may be saying, after kind of unpack all of that for you, you might be saying, well, you know, that's all well and good, Tim. This, this argument's great, but all it really does is relegate me to the slavery of a fallen will, to the mercy of a disordered universe that only results in pain, death, and suffering. Is there no relief in sight? Is there any hope that a fallen world will be redeemed? Is there any rhyme or reason to any of it? You know, and those are all fair questions. And I have heard them in my practical ministry over the last 30 years. And I have come up with an answer, I think, or an explanation. I hope works. It's worked for me. I'll share it with you. And we cannot seek, if we're going to be honest, we cannot seek to understand the events set in motion by the failure of Adam and Eve without considering homardiology. That's a Another seminary word, what it really means is sin and where it comes from. The doctrine of sin. Where does it come from and how it impacts our world? And I firmly believe that any attempt to avoid doing that will make any explanation fall short and it won't leave any comfort or answers to those that want to seek them. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 explained it this way. He says in verse 12, chapter 5, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world? Because he's talking about Adam. And death by sin. You go back to that story. God says, if you do this, you will die. 
And then it says, And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And if we look again at Romans chapter 8, verse 21, the text I'm using is sort of the basis of this podcast, Paul called that the bondage of corruption. We are enslaved to it. We are in bondage to our sinful nature. And evil is the natural consequence of sin. It's the corruption of good. And it is bondage. And our only hope to escape bondage is to be liberated by an outside influence. Anybody or any example of things in history where people are in bondage, somebody from the outside had to free them from that bondage. If we want to look ahead about being saved from that curse or being saved from that bondage, we have to look in Romans 8 and continue through there and go further than the text that we used here. It says in verse 23, And not only they, but ourselves also. Now Paul makes a distinction between the creation, and then he makes a a comparison with not only the creation, not only they, but ourselves also. And he's talking about people which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now what does he mean by that, which have the first fruits of the Spirit? Well, he's talking about people that have a relationship with God. He's talking about people that have been born of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and he says, even we ourselves, even those people grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So Paul is saying that we have the creature and the creation, and then we have the children of God. And even the children of God, Paul says, grown within ourselves, and that we wait for that redemption of our body. And then he goes on and says, for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man sees, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. Well, Paul is saying there's a redemption coming, but until that redemption gets here, those with a relationship with God are still going to experience pain and suffering. But we also have a hope in all of that. And in verse 26, in that portion of Scripture in chapter 8, it says, Likewise, the Spirit's capital S, that's a Holy Spirit, also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So in all of these things that we experience as believers in life, it says the Spirit helps with these things while we're waiting for that redemption. Prays for us, makes intercession for us. And then it goes on in the next verse, verse 27, and says, He searches the hearts, and he that searches the hearts, I'm sorry, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then it goes on and says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, and to them who are called according to his purpose. Now what Paul was saying is that, look, there is pain and suffering. God knows this. Believers experience pain and suffering. We are waiting for a redemption of our body. We are waiting for that adoption. And while we're waiting for that, we're groaning within ourselves. We're going to experience pain. We're going to experience tragedy. That the Holy Spirit is to help us to get through all of that. And that he knows all about our pains. And then that last verse, which I just read, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Even in those pains, Paul says, the pains he knows Christians experience, the pains he know that be, he knows believers experience, 
He says, all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. And so, you know, maybe you're saying, well, this argument's well and good, but all it really does is relegate me to the fancies of immoral people who seek to do me harm. Where is my relief? Is there any hope that a fallen world will be redeemed? I don't think we can honestly understand the existence of pain and tragedy without understanding that there is a hope at the end. I don't think we can explain pain and tragedy without accepting the existence of God and what he says about pain and suffering. Now, I've been in the criminal justice field as a professional for, oh, 30-some years now. I've encountered uh, many times in my career uh, people who have murdered children, murdered their parents, murdered their spouses, murdered perfect strangers, often without explanation. It's uh, sadly something I've become desensitized to a degree. I'm grateful that for that in, in some ways. In other ways, I'm not. I'm, I'm able to examine and look at evil, you know, tragedy, pain, clinically, without emotion, even speak civilly to the people who perpetuated it. I can detach from it. I can function within it. And it's worked well for me over my career. It allows me to function mostly in the midst of tragedies. And in other ways, I'm, I'm not grateful for that. I can look at the tragedies of, of life sometimes and not feel anything, especially if it isn't close to me. I can just shrug my shoulders and move on and not episode, uh, excuse me, empathize at all with the victims unless I force myself to do that. But I mean, having given all this groundwork to you, I, I want to work towards some sort of cohesive reconciliation of the pains and tragedies of life with our Christian faith. You know, Paul said we were going to experience it. Paul said God knows about it. Paul said the Holy Spirit is here to work work us through it, help work us through it, and that anything that we encounter is to work together for good to them that love God. Now, that's what it says. Now, the theologians of the ages have confronted this problem for thousands of years. The Old Testament book of Job, I mean, it's possibly the oldest book in the Bible, it's almost entirely about pain and suffering and what causes it. Who's responsible for it? And I think the Bible speaks of two types of evil. There's the moral evil and the natural evil. But it's the old chicken and the egg question, which one came first, natural or moral evil? Now, the moral evil, the fall of man, precedes the natural evil. It was the fall of man that brought about the curse on nature. Well, the natural evil. And we are, as Solomon wrote, eating the fruit of our own way. The way set forth by the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, we know that man is created perfect in Genesis 2. He sins in Genesis 3 and commits his first murder in Genesis 4. And we read in Genesis 6 that the Bible says the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. It's in Genesis 6, verses 11 and 12. And 2,500 years after this, Solomon writes of the sinful nature of man, for their feet run to evil and make haste to shed innocent blood. That's in Proverbs 1.16. Now, the prophet Isaiah wrote around 700 B.C. something similar to what Solomon said, and he added to that, wasting and destruction are in their paths. Now, I want you to consider the slaughter of innocent children by Herod right after the birth of Christ, meant to prevent the entrance of Christ into the world. I don't think you get much more evil than that, do you? I mean, think of school shootings. 
Think of the sex trafficking of children, pedophile rings, or other despicable crimes that involve children. If we can learn anything from an honest look at our world, it's that everything the Word of God tells us, the Bible, tells us about our state and warns us about its consequences is true. And if we accept that, that presents a dilemma which requires action and a decision. David wrote in Psalm 10, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thyself in times of trouble? God, why are you so far away? Why do you hide when bad things happen? And then he goes on and says, The wicked sitteth in the lurking places of the village, and in the secret places he doth murder the innocent. Paul saying, God, where are you? Where are you in these troubles? The wicked are just hanging around, lurking, making prey of innocent people. Well, Paul reiterated some of those points in Romans chapter 3. He said things like, nothing good dwells in my flesh. He says, I would like to do good, but I can't. He says, no one seeks after God. He says things like, they've not known the ways of peace. He says destruction and misery are in their ways. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. These are all the things that Paul talked about. This is man, really, in that question of sin. This is man left to his own devices. And that whole truckload of human misery comes from the fall of man. And that foundation brick that began in the garden has served as the cornerstone of the pyramid of all human misery and despair. And our propensity for violence has only grown. You look at any government of the world, and you look at how much money they spend on research trying to find out the most quick and efficient way to kill each other. Take a look at some of the weapons that we are seeing in Russia's war with Ukraine. Look at some of the weapons that the United States government has and what they're for. Man has only caused himself pain. Whether it's sin or whether it's something else. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You know, if you look at some of the evil things that have happened that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, like 9-11, like uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, even some of your personal tragedies, what do people do? when they experience something like that. You know, I remember when the, the first Gulf War started in 1990 and in 1991 and how church attendance spiked all over the United States when that happened because everybody was certain that God was trying to speak to us in those circumstances. We saw the same thing after 9-11. When a personal tragedy happens to you, what is the first thing, what's the first thing we do? We look to heaven and we say, Why? Well, why do we do that if there's no God there? Why do we do that if there are no answers? Not, I want to say God's allowance of the consequences of sin serves as a means to remind us of what our world and universe would be like without Him. You know, in much the same way we allow our children to fail and experience the consequences of pains and failure, we know it will serve to point them in the right direction. At least we hope it will. We hope that the pain that comes from mistakes will teach you how to do it right the next time. You know, God's an infinite being, you know, concerned with the end game, the eternal. While we're concerned with the temporal, the here and now, 
That in itself puts us at odds with God's perspective. The pains and sufferings that we endure in this life and the pain it causes us as individuals, God, God is not deaf towards any of that. But it's the natural consequence of the moral failings of man. God is not the author of these things. God, through the merits of his son Jesus Christ, is the cure. God, through Jesus Christ, has fixed the problem. In the mind of God, the game is over. So if you're asking if God is ever going to intervene, when is God going to intervene and do something? God has already done that. God is not constrained by time. He sees everything in the here and now. Evil is defeated in the eternal, though we have yet to experience it in the temporal. Jesus has risen from the grave. We will celebrate that soon. The Easter season's upon us. He is seated on the right hand of God. And I want to say that Jesus did tell us this is the kind of life that we would experience. He said in John 16, 33, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have, have. That's past tense. I have overcome the world. Now, all the platitudes I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, uh, however well-intentioned, I think, are empty without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus knows man. John chapter 2, it reads of Jesus, he said, And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You know, this should point us to God. If there is no God, there is no explanation for tragedy. There is no explanation for pain. There is no explanation for suffering. There is no explanation for evil or any hope of reconciliation. No hope or comfort forthcoming. No afterlife. No hope of ever reconciling pain and suffering with anything that is good, decent, and holy. I don't want to live in a world devoid of that hope. And, you know, thanks to Jesus, I don't have to. I don't have to do that. It says in Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, this is the Apostle Paul, again, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Further in 2 Corinthians 4.17 and 18, Paul writes, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, life is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. As I mentioned earlier, those things have an end. What we see in front of us, the world around us, it has an end. It is temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. That's God's end game. The eternal state. We are working towards that. And whatever we have to go through here pales in comparison to the glory which is on that side. John chapter 9, 1 through 3. There's a story that John writes there. And I'll read the text. It says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Through this man's blindness, God was going to do something that worked out for good. 
he may not have understood it, that poor blind man. But that was the purpose. John eleven fourteen, the raising of Lazarus. Jesus' friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus purposely doesn't heal him. And he said that he did that. And this is a phrase that, that sticks with me. He said he did not save Lazarus from his illness, and he let Lazarus die to the intent that you may believe. There are things that God will let us go through and let us experience because the intention of that is that you might believe. That's good Bible. That's good Bible. When we talk about evil and how it's allowed. Think of, you know, crime and, and pedophiles, murder, etc. Think of the most evil, vile thing you've ever heard of a human being doing. God doesn't allow that. You know, human society allows that. You know, do we hold criminals accountable as the Bible says that we should? If not, can we assume some of the responsibility for their existence? Maybe. If this life is all there is, then surely the problem of evil would be irresolvable. Nobody Erickson, theologian that I have read, he has said that. But Christianity's doctrine of the life hereafter teaches that there will be a great time of judgment. Every sin will be recognized. Punishment for evil will be justly administered. Now, we know that God has a plan, and there is a reconciliation of the end, at the end. Now, I want to go back to that hope. Nobody wants to live in a world that's devoid of that hope. And I'm going to say again, thanks to Jesus, we don't have to. God is not the cause of evil. He is the cure. I want you to look to Jesus for reconciling the pains and tragedy of life. Because he is the cure for all of it. I want to thank you for listening this week.